Ag Nerds. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and if you're interested in where innovative ideas meet practical realities in food production, you have found the right show. One of the biggest criticisms of ag tech and really many ag innovations in general is they often seem to be a solution that is looking for a problem. I mean, a startup might take something that has been successful elsewhere, as an example, and just try to apply it to ag. And sometimes, I guess, this approach might actually look out and find a real market. But most times, in fact, I'd say the overwhelming majority of the time, it fails. But what if startups instead started with the customer? I mean, really understanding the needs of that customer, what problems they're wrestling with, what types of solutions they might be looking for, and what approaches the industry is most likely to be receptive to adopting. For example, our episode today is about the cattle feeding industry, which, as you'll hear, has a massive market size that could provide a lot of upside to the right kinds of innovations. I would say it's been a sector of agriculture that not enough startups have really paid attention to. But the Beef Alliance is trying to change all of that with a new program called Feeding Innovation, a Beef Alliance Startup Challenge. So this episode is kind of like a call for startups, which I think is sort of a cool change of pace to our normal content here, but still fitting under the umbrella of innovations for the future of agriculture. So let's talk about the problems and the state of innovation in this sector of agriculture in hopes that maybe the right solutions will be attracted to solving these problems. The Beef Alliance wants smart entrepreneurial problem solvers to see real potential opportunity in applying their talents to the cattle feeding industry. They're putting up $50,000 in the form of a cash prize and the chance at a pilot project to the winning startup of their competition. So even for startups that don't win that top prize and chance to pilot, it's still an opportunity to engage with leaders throughout the cattle feeding industry who could end up potentially becoming customers and investors. For those who may not know, the Beef Alliance is an organization of innovative, progressive, and relevant cattle feeding companies. Through collaborative innovation, scientific exploration, and value chain engagement, the Beef Alliance is committed to being a leader and catalyst for positive change in the beef supply chain. I'll share more details on the Startup Challenge itself at the end of the show, but for now, you're going to get to hear from two leaders in the cattle feeding industry. The first is Dr. Abram Babcock, who's the president of Adams Land and Cattle in Broken Bow, Nebraska. Also joining me is John Wilson, who is a fifth-generation Oregon cattleman and managing partner of several cattle-related businesses, including Beef Northwest, Wilson Cattle Company, and Country Natural Beef. I have to say, this was a lot of fun to just sit down and pick the brains of these two cattle feeding leaders about the current state of the industry and what's needed to move things forward. So to all of you entrepreneurs out there, go get a pen and paper out because you're going to get some fantastic market discovery and customer discovery information in the next 35 minutes. And really, even if you're not an entrepreneur looking for a new market to tackle, this is just a fascinating insight into the massive feed yard business, the cattle feeding industry that I think is very, very relevant to the future of agriculture. First, though, I'll let them both go deeper into their backgrounds, starting with Adams Land and Cattle President Abram Babcock. You know, I... Uh... Didn't grow up in a feedlot setting, grew up in a row crop setting from Northeast Colorado. 
um, really got involved in the feedlot side when I was working on my PhD at K-State. We really were using big data to try to tie animal health outcomes to kind of overall economics in the feedlot setting. So that's what kind of got me interested on the feedlot side and the big data side, really, in this business. And then about 10 and a half years ago, I came to Adams. They were looking for an operations research analyst. So started um, in that role. And then over the 10 and a half years I've been here, just had the opportunity to kind of move through the company. Um, And then three years ago, um, Bill and Jerry gave me the opportunity to be president of the company, kind of from a succession um, planning standpoint on their end. You know, our operation, um, we're in Broken Bow, Nebraska, right in about the middle of Nebraska. Um, We have three finished lot operations with approximately 125,000 head of capacity. And then we feed a lot of cattle, you know, 80 or 90% of our cattle come through the auction barn. Most of those are placed outside of, of our facilities. And so data and, and infrastructure to manage that inventory is very important. So we put EIDs in 100% of our cattle and then uh, get data on a daily basis into those cattle. And then, you know, those cattle funnel through uh, one of our three finished lot uh, operations where we have some proprietary sort technology. We sort the cattle into pins and then ultimately they're, you know, here for 150 to 200 more days and then they, they go to the packer. You know, any any given time we have a little over 200,000 head on feed uh, typically. Great. John, how about you? I'm a fifth generation Oregonian. I've got a great story. My uh, great, great grandparents came across the Oregon Trail back in the 1870s and settled in Oregon. The family still has the original homestead that they they settled on here. And and I'm the fifth generation of our family that, that have been in the cattle industry. We do a lot of stalker cattle. We have a lot of ranches in the Western states um, that we run outside cattle in and got into the feedlot business in the early 90s. We've got, I guess, five feedlots in the Pacific Northwest, um, Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. We finish over 200,000 head of cattle a year. We also finish cattle for Country Natural Beef, which is a natural beef program that we're very involved in. A lot of our cow herds, progenies, go through the Country Natural Beef program. Um, I have a son and daughter who are also in the business now that are working for various companies that are under the umbrella. Country Natural Beef is one of the larger natural beef programs in the country, and and it's um, generally a, a cooperative of ranchers that we're pretty involved in, and that takes up quite a bit of our time out here. We do a little bit of farming. We do a lot of things associated kind of with the core business of cattle feeding. Our footprint is really in the on the West Coast and, and primarily in the Pacific Northwest. Great. And just while we're on the topic, would you mind talking about country natural beef as far as what's different from those animals than might be, you know, other animals that would go through your process? The country natural beef program, and, you know, there's a lot of natural beef programs and, and, and a lot of them have different claims and different attributes, but uh, the country natural beef program is a never ever program. The, the cattle that finish in that program uh, or that are eventually are processed uh, never ever on antibiotics um, or growth hormones. We feed a non-GMO ration. It, it, we're non-GMO certified. All the cattle that go through also um, are certified by the GAP, uh, Global Animal Partnership, or the IMI's beef care program. We we have cattle certified under both. The cattle um, are, are primarily designated for a consumer 
that um, wants a few more attributes in their cattle and are willing to pay for it. Uh, we do a lot of business with Whole Foods markets and then a lot of similar type, smaller family retail outlets on the West Coast. Probably the biggest difference between conventional feeding, the, the cattle that we feed for conventional markets and um, the natural program is um, the certification processes that we go through and then obviously never having antibiotics or hormones or anything that's non-vegetarian. Our cattle that go through that program are um, about 90% raised on the ranch and followed all the way through the program. We track everything individually, but we also do that conventionally. We, we EID every animal that goes through our operations. So we are tracking everything individually, but we started that with the natural program. And Abram, I know you mentioned the EID tags. You know, at what point did you all start doing that? And, you know, any any other maybe examples along those lines of innovation that have happened in, in the last decade or so? In the early 2000s is when they started putting EIDs in, in 100% of the cattle. And it was really from a, a food safety perspective. Uh, they wanted to make sure they had some type of electronic verification process to ensure that cattle weren't getting to the packer um, with any type of drug residue and at the right cattle, getting on the right truck at the right time. So that that's really what led them into it. I think over time, we've figured out ways to extract value of understanding, you know, individual animal variation, as opposed to, you know, just having an outcome at the pin level through our sorting system and kind of how we how we quantify risk on the cattle we're purchasing. So it's it's really, you know, being able to disaggregate the data, understand the variation, quantify that variation, and, you know, be able to, to use that to your benefit to understand production risk. And John, while he's doing that, I'm just curious, you know, a lot has changed since the early 90s when you kind of started down this road. You know, as far as innovation goes, what have been the most significant milestones that you see in the cattle feeding business since you've been doing this? You know, I, I guess I would say through the whole supply chain, at least, probably at the processing end, you know, have been the biggest changes since the early 90s as far as breaking the animal in kind of going more toward a uh, a consumer pull instead of an industry push. I would say our industry is, if I look at it back in the early 90s and I look at it today, I, I would say that our industry is definitely adapted to listening to the consumer as opposed to telling the consumer what we wanted them to hear or what we wanted them to eat. That would probably be at the top of my list. In, in what ways would you say that that's happened? You know, What types of consumer-driven changes have you seen? Well, we talked about the natural program a little bit earlier. You know, the, the the first natural programs really were gaining, you know, just just a little bit of traction in the early 90s. But, uh, we, you know, we've got natural, we've got organic, we've got grass-fed today uh, for the consumer to choose from. But on the conventional end, which still feeds over 90% of the of the population, the, the, the conventional end has um, products that are that are focused on Asian markets. We've got products that are focused on Hispanic markets. We've listened to the consumer. Um, if you look at the percent choice in Prime today compared to the 90s, you know we're 25 or 30 percent higher than we were there. I mean, the, the the consumer wasn't getting a great experience every meal, and we listened and we changed genetics, we changed management practices, the processors changed the way that the cattle were being taken apart, and. Um, I mean, really, it, it, it has started at the cow-calf end with genetics and management. 
and continued through the cattle feeding sector, you know, a lot with the kind of feeds, the kind of nutrition the cattle have and, and, and health, um, you know, the health of the cattle, the, the things that we have to use today, both pharmaceutical and management techniques are completely different than they were in the 90s. So I really think it's sort of all the way up and down the stream, shooting towards making that consumer a little happier. There's this narrative out there, you know, of, hey, we're going to innovate in uh, animal protein by doing, you know, X, Y, Z. Maybe it's regenerative. Maybe it's alternative. Maybe it's, you know, grass fed or whatever. I think the story that that I'm hoping to tell today, and I think, you know, certainly John just touched on quite a bit is there's some really cool innovation happening in the traditional cattle feeding business as well. And maybe traditional isn't even the right word to use. Can you talk about that message as far as what do you see as innovations or potential for innovation for the cattle feeding industry? Yeah, you know, I, I think there's a lot of opportunity on the innovation side, you know, whether it be animal health or the feeding side. You know, you know, one of the, the sides of it that really excites me is more, you know, on the sustainability route. Some, some different metrics, I think, as an industry that we need to start collect, whether that be water usage, electricity, those type of things, um, with where sensors have come. The last several years, I, I think there is going to be an ability for our industry to really start to tell our story um, with data in a very cost-effective, efficient manner where, you know, 10 years ago, some of these metrics would be very hard or very expensive to collect on a daily basis. So that is one area that I, I think there's opportunity for us. You know, there, there's plenty of opportunity on, you know, the cattle feeding side, but some of these ancillary things to, to truly tell our story and, and show that we are a sustainable industry, I, I think is pretty exciting. As you think back, I'm sure like anyone in agriculture, there have been people trying to bring innovations to the market that maybe haven't worked. You know, in your experience, I'm sure you've sat down with plenty of company that says, well, here, here's how we can help your business. And it just hasn't worked for one reason or another. Could you maybe speak to, you know, what are those reasons that, that maybe some startups have had trouble innovating in the cattle feeding business? I think one of the biggest things that uh, have been an, you know, an impediment just because people don't understand it completely coming in is we've got a perishable product. You know, we, we've got a live animal that is going through the life cycle on a, on a continuous basis and, and is perishable and it lives out in the environment. It's weather affecting it, um, their ownership changes, um, the, the animal's not static, it's not sitting on a shelf in a manufacturing plant. You know, I, I, I would say that um, probably a fairly common mistake is uh, companies or innovators or, or people coming up with new products underestimate what the impacts that, that that live perishable product really have on any implementation of anything. Yeah, I, I completely agree there. I, you know, I, I think I've seen a lot where, you know, people just don't truly understand that, that complex interaction between the biology of a, of a living animal, the weather, the production systems, all of those things. So, you know, you can you can go build a technology in one environment, but to go get it and, and have it externally valid to a, another environment or another production system um, is gets very complicated. And I think that's very underappreciated from a technology standpoint and, and understanding that's very important to, to making the technology successful. And one thing I would add add on to that is, um, you know, if, if you're making nuts and bolts in a manufacturing plant, they're all exactly the same. They all sit on the shelf the same way. They're all used the same application when they go to the, the consumer. And um, the, the beef 
animal. Every one of them is different. Every every single DNA is different. Every every single one of them is different. But that 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 becomes more exacerbated the farther they go through the stream. And you know when they finally get to processing, if you're trying to trace what you know whatever the technology is that you've used on the animal, if you're trying to trace that, all of a sudden that is broken into multiple parts that go a hundred different directions from steaks to cubes to fat to everything. It's not going to the same consumer. It's going all over the place. So the traceability on technology becomes more and more and more difficult. I guess I'd throw that on too as one of the places that um, has been a hurdle for a lot of innovators is just being able to trace the process all the way through to get results. Well, there's been a couple of things come out here from the two of you that I think are interesting and worth diving into, which are you know both traceability and sustainability metrics. Now, these are two things that I think everybody would mostly universally agree are good, are important, are helpful. But are there really financial incentives out there? Like if, if you know, are these problems that if solved, somebody's going to be rewarded for solving them? In what I mean by that is you know, the sustainability metrics are good data to have to help tell the story and traceability is good to have to kind of know um, how a product moves through the supply chain. But I'm I, one thing I always wrestle with is like, who pays ultimately? Like who who's so excited to see these problems solved that there's a financial incentive for like a startup to go do that? Hey, Abram. <laughs> um, yes and no. I mean, that that's a wide open question, obviously. And and, you know, part of the problem is, I think, the, the word sustainability. I mean, you, you can have as many different definitions of the word sustainability as you have people answering the question. Earlier, you brought up regen, uh, the regenerative movement. You know, we've been pretty involved in that oh, for five years now and, and becoming more so. And, and we're learning. We like what it means. We like the fact that the consumer likes what it means. There are a lot of regenerative ideas that won't go to scale. They're really great for a 10-cow herd, but they, they won't go to scale in the public lands of the West or, or in Texas. But there are things that will go to scale. And what we're seeing is a lot of those um, in cases are better management practices. And those pay. Uh, and I think Abram would agree. Any Anytime, you know, traceability, sustainability that improve your management practices you, you may not be getting paid by the consumer for a better cut of beef, but you may be becoming more efficient in your operations and, and maybe saving a little money there. Um, Abram talked earlier about using EID, you know, and I think Adams were probably one of the pioneers of using tags on everything. And uh, Beef Northwest has also used, I, I don't know, I think we've been EIDing everything for over a decade now, and um, we're not receiving anything from a packer or a consumer for that. But what we're learning internally has saved us a lot of money. So today, maybe the answer is no, we're not getting paid directly if we're sustainable or if we have traceability, but if we can improve management practices, then there is a payback. And with a lot of these things, and I'd love to hear Abram's thoughts on it, but uh, we've changed management practices significantly because of what we've learned. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. I, I think, you know, any piece of data you collect that, you know, we've mentioned, you know, whether it be water or electricity, animal, I, I mean, I think there's there's ways to extract value out of that. It, it just becomes how expensive it is to, to collect the data. 
And I think the cool place we're in today is a lot of these technologies to collect those data is are becoming cost effective. So it, it gives you the opportunity to go to extract the value, you know, even even if it's only pennies instead of, you know, dollars, like some of the early ones, I, I think there's still value in understanding them and, and being able to extract the value. Plus, there's, you know, there's the ancillary value of, of being able to, to tell a story and, and deliver the consumer, you know, what, what they want and what they want to know with data. You know, I think just speaking a, a little bit more to the sustainability part or, or the regenerative part in our natural program, which, you know, is, is much smaller, we can get paid for a regenerative story. Um, but that's a very specific consumer that really appreciates it. It really, he really, under, she really understands that. And they're willing to pay just a little bit more if there are certain certifications, third party validation that those practices are going on. But the mainstream consumer isn't there yet. Well, I think that's one thing that is exciting, though, in the in the beef industry is that, you know, a little bit can go a long way, meaning, you know, pennies per head or per pound, especially add up to big time dollars. Whereas if you could make a, you know, a huge margin improving jicama crop at the end of the day, you know, maybe the total addressable market isn't there. Could you speak a little bit about just the the size of this industry from an opportunity standpoint when we're speaking to entrepreneurs who may want to uh, look at the beef supply chain? You know, I, I think... And I probably should have looked this up so that I don't say something that people are going to call me up and say that's not accurate. But but I I think the fed cattle industry is is around a forty forty five billion dollar industry annually. So it it's got enough scale. There, there are enough gross dollars involved that incremental changes, as you mentioned, add up to a, a lot of money. You know, you, you you go down the the next sector, and I I think. If the whole cow-calf industry sold their calves at 500 pounds, it's a 20 or $25 billion industry. So, And then you've got the stocker segment, and it's probably somewhere in between. And if, if you have three changes of ownership, you have a lot of gross dollars changing hands. And if each one of those segments can, can take a piece of an incremental change, uh, it starts adding up in, into big dollars. And, uh, you know, I think that's part of, you know, i got to hand Mary Suka and give her all the credit for coming up with with this idea, this pitch idea that we're we're going with. But I think she recognized that maybe there are a lot of people out there, innovators or creative people that didn't recognize how many dollars were literally at stake in this industry. And um, it's probably an industry that hadn't been focused on by that stream of people. But there, there a lot of dollars involved. And Abram, we've talked about sustainability metrics and traceability. Are there any other areas that you would like to collect more data on, but uh, maybe it's too expensive or just in general, innovations that you would hope to see from startups coming to the table in this type of an event? Yeah, you know, a couple other ones that, I, you know, I, I think we've come a long way, but, you know, on the animal health side and specifically the diagnostic side, um, we still depend on, you know, somebody assessing the cattle on a daily basis and, and deciding are, are they are they sick? Or are they not? And, and what are the clinical signs? And I, I don't think there's opportunity to completely replace that. Uh, but I think there are a lot of opportunities to augment our decision and our diagnostics around different disease processes in the feedlot side. And then I also think, you know, just the automation, um, you know, labor's, labor's tough. And it, it's tough to find skilled labor um, in the feedlot setting uh, today. So, you know, anything that we could do to, you know, autonomous vehicles to 
to, you know, just, just making um, that employee's day easier, uh, more efficient. I think there, there's a ton of opportunities to really disrupt our industry in, in those areas as well. And I would, I, I would put an exclamation point on the labor and, and automation. Um, I, I think I, I view that maybe as one of the biggest opportunities out there for innovation. Um, you know, I mean, it's not only the feedlot sector, but processing. We've all read, read a lot about, you know, after the some of the issues that happened within the plants during the COVID, you know, we've read a lot about we need more automation, we need more robotics and things like that. Feedlot sector is the same thing. And I, I think there are some tremendous opportunities for savings and efficiencies and employee safety by more automation. You know, the one thing that both Abram and I and everybody in the industry would agree on too, anything we can do to improve feed conversion. That's probably the biggest and the fastest return on on any dollar. But kind of along the lines that Abram said earlier about health, we've made a lot of innovations in the, those directions. There may not be quite as many opportunities there. And the efficiency of conversion has come so far. What do you think it takes to sort of unlock the next level there? I defer to the doctor. Yeah, no, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think it's it's continuing to understand. You know, I, I think John mentioned we, we've made a ton of stride on the nutrition side, but understanding the nutrition with you know the interactions of some of these different different bugs or probiotics that we're using, just all of these different things, and, and truly understanding, you know, the I mean, just the the room and the 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 whole digestive system is very complex, right? It's a living organism, so I think continuing to understand you know, really the, the interactions of these, these different bugs and, and how they, how they impact that. Um, I, I think there's a, a ton of opportunity on, on just understanding that side of it, but I, I, I think there's products and, and I also think there's data, right? We, we still, we feed cattle, whether it be three or five rations in a feedlot, right? Are, are there ways to get more precise on pins of cattle on, on what do they truly need and, and really feeding cattle is still done at a group level, which I don't know how you'd ever make it individual, but how do we, how do we kind of know, okay, this pin needs this today. We truly don't start to understand kind of that precision agriculture of, of feeding a pin of cattle. And I, you know, I don't know what that all looks like, but I think there would probably be opportunity to maximize kind of the performance of those cattle. If we could understand what is their truly daily need, you know, today and specific to that pin of cattle. I, I would agree with with everything he said. You know, I, I guess I hope that maybe we can develop technology or, or something that we'll never be able to feed exactly to the individual. I mean, it's, it's always going to be a group thing, but but maybe we can get a little bit better at feeding to the individual, you know, through sorting or or identification of DNA or frame score or things like that. There's probably a little bit of opportunity there. Is there anything that companies keep trying to sort of want to push on the industry that just doesn't seem to be working or it's so saturated that, yeah, it's working, but there's a million other companies doing that. I'm thinking about like, you know, on row crops, like imagery, you know, everybody has their own spin on imagery and everybody's kind of trying to push imagery in, in some sort of context. Is there anything in, in the cattle feeding industry that's like that, where it's like, okay, yes, there's something there, but th there's also a bunch of other people already trying to do that. There seems to be a lot of, um, and, <laughs> And there's a lot of opportunity, but there there are a lot of probiotic and bug salesmen, and um, you know feed additive. That must be a really easy thing to sell people in our industry because there's there's a lot of stuff that's just not very good that's 
seems to constantly be on the marketplace. I don't know, Abram. <laughs> well, I, I think a big part of that is, is some of those don't have to go through an FDA approval process. So they're very cheap. There, there's not a lot of barriers to entry to get to the market. And then they bring them to market, but they forget to do the research um, and sound research to, to really differentiate themselves. So I, I would agree. I mean, that's the one thing in our industry that comes to my mind that, man, there's, just, there's a ton of them. So, you know, trying to sort through them and, and actually understand, you know, what ones work and what ones don't um, is a challenge. Yeah, I think this is hitting on an important topic, too, that I wanted to talk to you guys about, which is where do innovators go wrong? I know we mentioned earlier they they assume that every head of cattle is the same when every single one of them is different. And then what you just talked about, which is they don't actually do the research. They try to rush it to market. Are there any other kind of common pitfalls or mistakes that we, an entrepreneurial audience that may be listening can maybe avoid or or remedy from from the outset? You know, I think John hit on a lot of my, I think the scalability just, just, you know, there's a lot of things that, that work in small scale, but then when you try to take them to a, to a large commercial setting that they're difficult. So I, I just, I'd reiterate that one for sure. I think the industry has gotten a lot more sophisticated and, and we're demanding more validity. And, and I think a lot of um, what we see and what we're approached with, they just haven't done the trial work um, and, and they don't have anything to support it. And, um, I don't know why that's hard to get through uh, a lot of companies and a lot of innovators, but we constantly see products that just are not supported by trial work and, and anything valid. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as you think about the future, I mean, you all are doing some really progressive things in Oregon there. I mean, with the country natural beef and er everything you're working on, you mentioned all the regenerative stuff, you know, where, where do you see the in industry evolving that may change some of the needs, maybe even slightly about what innovations are needed by the industry? You know, I I don't know, and I shouldn't say this because the, the minute I say this, I, I'll be proven wrong, but from a quality standpoint, I think we've got a quality product today. I mean, I, I think we've really achieved what, not everything we wanted to, but We've got we, we've taken the the low hanging fruit for sure, and probably the middle hanging fruit as we've improved quality so much over the years. I, I think now it's it's a matter of being competitively priced. Um, you know, we've got the fake meat or alternative meat or or whatever you want to cut plant based meat or we don't like to call it meat, um, but whatever it is, they're they're going to get more and more. Um, creative and, and more competitive. And, and I think we need to, I think our industry is going to have to focus on not only telling our story about the value of the product and, and you know, the minerals and vitamins and everything, but, but we're going to have to be price competitive. If, if I were an innovator and I were going to a pitch competition, um, I would be focused on cost reduction in the industry because I, I think that's the name of the game for the next several years. How do you manage what new ideas to try? I mean, you only have so many resources and every single one of these new ideas is going to take up more of them. So how do you sort of manage what you want to focus on if you're going to look at adopting something new? We have a what we call an art a research kind of steering committee. That's that's a group of um, people from, you know, across the company, whether that be our, you know, our veterinarians, nutritionists, some of our operational people. Um, and then we try to prioritize you know, kind of going into the next year on, on what things are important to us um, in high level objectives, not necessarily specific to a product, but that way when, when somebody comes in with a product or an idea, it, it kind of needs to fit within our priority bucket if, if we're going to allocate resources. We, so we try to do it through kind of priority and, 
and really what it boils down to is either the bottom line and return or something that we think we need to get ahead of, you know, long term to, to make sure that that we're viable into the future. Um, much the same sort of process. I mean, we have a, a steering committee that looks at things. We try to have things almost like a CapEx budget. I mean, we try to have things laid out for the next two or three years. Our, our chief operating officer, Wes Killian, came to us, I guess it's been about two years ago, um, with the idea to develop one of our small yards into a research facility. And um, we're finally kicking that off this next winter. I mean, what it is, is basically the company has committed and prioritized research. It looks like a cost center going in, but we, we feel eventually that it's, it really is going to be a revenue producer and a, and a profit center. So th- that's new to us. But I think in two or three years, if you ask me the same question, I'll probably have a much different answer because of the priority that we're giving it. It's not that we haven't prioritized it in the past. I think we just see more of a need. Great. Well, we got just a few minutes left here. I want to give each of you a chance for some parting thoughts, you know, to an audience made up of a lot of kind of ag entrepreneurial types, you know, uh, looking at this cattle feeding industry and wondering if there might be an opportunity for them to help develop solutions. What would you like to add to the conversation that we've had so far about, um, you know, to, to, to those people? Any, any, I'm not going to give you too much direction because I want you to take it in your own direction, but uh, what would you say to them? Uh, John, let's start with you. You know, I, I guess the one thing that comes to mind that, that not so much about product or, or a direction or anything, but um, the Beef Alliance is, a, is an extremely creative and I, I would say leadership-bound group uh, in our industry. I, I think it's some of the most innovative people in our industry out there. Some well-capitalized companies. Um, we've talked about the, the billions of dollars that are in the cattle feeding industry. And we've kind of taken an opportunity here to really focus attention on some needs within our industry that are pretty specific. But uh, the members of the Beef Alliance have the wherewithal both financially and intellectual capital to support somebody that comes up with an idea. And it may not even be the winner. I think there's an opportunity for for people that want to specialize or get fairly specific toward our industry to meet a group of of people that that can give them some serious help down the road, maybe more so than any or most other groups in our industry. And Abram, how about you? Parting thoughts? Uh, anything you want to add to the conversation here? No, I, I completely agree. I, I think this is a unique opportunity. You know, I've been a, a part of a couple other pitch um, I, competitions. One one was more through a pharmaceutical company and one through a financial institution. But I think this is unique where, where you know, the, the innovator has the ability to bring that technology straight to a group of very innovative cattle feeders that, that could potentially really catapult something into production and scalability. And I think that's a pretty unique opportunity that I haven't seen before. So I, I would just, you know, say, take advantage of that because it's, you know, we're, we're progressive and, and we want to innovate and we want to, we want to move our industry forward. So. Well, thank you again so very much to both Abram Babcock and John Wilson for taking the time to share their ideas and experiences about the cattle feeding industry on the show. For some of you, this episode might have been a paradigm shift about the cattle feeding industry and their commitment to sustainability, traceability, and just innovation in general. For others of you, maybe you have a company or an idea that would be a great fit for this industry's hunger for innovation. 
If you're in that latter camp, applications opened up last week on December 7th for this Feeding Innovation Startup Challenge. You have until February 15th, 2021 to get your application submitted in order to be eligible for the cash prize, $50,000 again, and chance to interact with these beef industry leaders. The application and more details about qualifications can be found over on their website. It's beefalliance.com forward slash startup challenge. Finalists will be announced March 1st and given a chance to pitch virtually on March 9th. Again, full details can be found on the website www.beefalliance.com forward slash startup challenge. If you know anyone who might be interested in this competition, please share this episode with them. What a tremendous advantage to start something under the guidance and direction of actual feedback from real industry leaders. Thanks so much to the Beef Alliance for presenting this opportunity and for partnering with me on this episode. To all of you, thank you so much, as always, for your time and your attention. I really don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. <music>